Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> If you like what you hear, go to ganglandwired.com. We need you to put a hit out on our donate button. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ganglandwire. Follow true crime storyteller Gary Jenkins on Twitter at Jenks Law. Buy the DVD Gangland Wire or download the Kansas City Mob Tour app. And now, here's Gary Jenkins. Good evening, folks. Back here in the studios of the Big Dumb Fun Show, Studio 4 in the beautiful Ice House in Midtown Kansas City. With my good friend and co-host, Aaron. Say hello, Aaron. Hello, Aaron. Good to be back. This is going to be episode two of the Great Jewelry Robbery, the Marlboro Diamond in London, England. It's uh, kind of bring you back up to date. It's a pretty interesting. <laughs> it is Chicago mob-connected professional criminals go to London, England and commit a jewelry theft. You can't write stuff like that. I mean, that that is the stuff movies are made out of. I'm, I'm surprised. I've never seen one. Uh, have you Have you ever seen that plot in a movie, Aaron, of a couple of professional mob criminals going to London and, and doing a jewelry theft? And Not that I can think of, but... I'm surprised that hadn't been a plot in something. Maybe there, if there is, if anybody's seen one out there, uh, email me at... Uh, uh, info at ganglandwire.com. I'd like to know about it. Or There's go a, to, I'm thinking of the James Caan movie. That was Thief, thief and he was a, he was a professional thief in in Chicago, and he he planned things out. He was I tell you what I he wasn't I believe he was I believe that character was kind of created with this uh, Jerry Scalise and Art Rachel in mind. I believe those are the the other character with. Um, um, James Kahn was Jim Bellucci was his partner and Bellucci was kind of the, he was a guy that knew about electronic alarms and all that. So I, I believe those two characters were created along those lines. They just didn't have him go to London, England and, and the story kind of focused more on, uh, James Kahn's problems with the, the Chicago, with the mob bosses, uh, as he started doing, uh, uh, jobs and didn't want to continue doing them for them and, and didn't, and wanted to stay independent. And, and this Scalise was not independent of the mob. You know, he was part of a mob hit crew called the, the wild bunch. 
he was a mob guy through and through. He was probably a made man. I don't know who his boss was. If he, There's about four different crews up there in Chicago, and I'm not sure. I didn't. I forgot to look this up, which crew he was part of, but he would have been part of one of the crews that maybe Joey the Clown, Joey Lombardo headed up a crew and at one point during this time. And, and uh, Iupa, Iupa was the boss by this time in 1980. Joy Iupa was in trouble for the skimming operation in Las Vegas by 1980, and he knew he was in big trouble. This was this was at least his worries, what Jerry Scalise or the monk and the brain were doing to to make money. Although anytime a guy, guys like this make money, they make a big score, they've got to kick upstairs. They've got to give a little piece of the action to their boss who then passes on up to his boss. Well, in the last episode, you were saying that Scalise, basically, well, he was a longtime Chicago outfit soldier, but he specialized in just like auto thief and chop shop work. Yeah. And that's a lot different than. Well, it's big business. Than heisting from a, you know, a, a jewelry store that publicly announces it's got these giant diamonds. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It is, it is a lot. It, it, uh, it, it is quite different. Um uh, I, I think that it's different, but it's the same. They're both stealing. Uh, both take a certain amount of organization. They both take uh, uh, contacts. Uh, if you're going to run a, shop, uh, a chop shop and an auto theft ring, then you, you've got to have uh, places to sell those auto body parts after you get done, and you got to have maybe some protection and from the police or from uh, if your guys get caught. I, I had a an informant once that, that did something like this, and and – one of his guys got caught. One of the guy, the guy who chopped it up got caught accidentally with some stolen cars, and and they put pressure on him, and he rolled over on uh, uh, the guy who I knew and and who had done a little bit of snitching for me. Not much. He wasn't. He he was trying to get information more than he was wanting to give it. But but the his guy who the body guy who chopped up the cars rolled over on him when he got popped and. And, and so, you know, there's those problems. They they need organization. They need political power and structure. They need ways to get lawyers. And and, and the diamond theft uh, need ways to get rid of the body parts and connections for that. And, and the diamond thieves, uh, the high-end thieves with diamonds, they're the same way. They've got to have connections. You just don't, I mean, you just don't take those to the swapping shop and sell them. You just don't take them to the pawn shop and, and pawn them. You need you need a organization who has different outlets and and maybe even jewelers jewelers who can cut them up and recast them into other pieces or who can sell them you know kind of on the slide uh, to certain people who will never you, know, you you don't worry about them uh, ratting you out. Well, some people are maybe collectors like art collectors that are willing to pay for a piece that they could that's otherwise not for sale yeah that's possible that's possible there's a little bit of that that, that the mob might have a connection to it's more like uh, oh i was going to tell a story kind of at the end it, it's more like we had a mob guy here in kansas city named morris klein he was a jewish mob guy it would it helped him really run the book and he was kind of semi-retired when i first started doing intelligence work and ran across him few years before I went in the intelligence unit and learned about people like Morris Snag Klein, as 
being the Jewish connection to the uh, Italian mafia in Kansas City and being helping them with the bookmaking. I was working burglars out of Central Patrol. Sounds like Joe Friday and Dragnet. You know, my partner, John Fraze, and I were working the day watch field investigation unit out of Central Patrol. And we got a call and, and we got a call about a burglary in the River Hills high rise apartment complex just off of downtown. We went down there and there there had been a ser- we found out there had been a series of burglaries that had gone on down there. And about a week later, we happened to stumble across a security guard who was in jail for stealing something from the building, and he had worked at the building. We went down to the jail that next morning. He'd been held overnight, and they were going to take him across the street. The other detectives were going to take him across the street to the Jackson County um, to the Jackson County Courthouse and arraign him for theft charges. So we got him out of the jail and took him in, brought him in, and said, "Hey, you know, you had a bunch of apartment burglars down there. What do you know about that?" You could see his, you could see it in his face. He knew, and he was afraid. And we pushed him and pushed him and, and offered him, you know, all kinds of help on his other theft charge if he could help us solve the rash that must have been 10 or 15 burglaries of residents at the apart, at the River Hills apartment complex. And finally he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, I'll tell you a little bit. If you will let me, if you'll go to my house and get some other clothes so I can take off the security guard uniform before I go up in the Jackson County Jail. So we said, oh, we'll do that. He said, there's a guy out here named Daryl Gilliard. I once gave him a pass key to these, all these apartments and a list of residents and their phone numbers. And we said, okay, good enough. We'll see what we can do on your theft charge. Make sure you get a probation. And we didn't even have to get it dismissed. Uh, you know, we may it, it turned out so well, we probably did get it dismissed for him in the end, but we didn't know how good it was going to turn out right then. And didn't really want to go to county wearing a... Wearing a security guard uniform, no. We uh, we started investigating this Daryl Gilliard and, and the different burglaries. We ended up getting a search warrant on Gilliard's apartment, and we found enough evidence. We found the uh, master key for the apartments down there. We found the list of residents and phone numbers, just like our guide told us. And we found some other items that have been taken and listed as stolen in these burglaries. So we got we get Gilliard in, and we start talking to him and, and tell him there, there's this one burglary, and this lady who was a manicurist at the Mulebach Hotel. This was back in the day, in the 70s, all the uh, big hotels would have a barber shop in the basement, and they would have a manicurist and, and probably a shoeshine guy also in, in the um, uh, barbershop. So she was a, a manicurist in the barbershop. She was probably, I say she was old at the time. She was probably younger than I am now, but she seemed old to me. And But I could tell, you could tell she was really quite attractive when she was young. She had all these really high-end pieces of jewelry. Now, they weren't the Marlboro Diamond, but they were ten, twelve thousand $12,000 pieces of jewelry. And, and we asked her about them, and, and how did she know, you know, it was this? She said, well... Here, here's a, a picture I got out of, I think it was Dolgen's was a uh, jewelry store at the time. It was kind of a, a discount store of every ilk, but they had some nice pieces of jewelry there. And they had pictures, and she found some pictures of jewelry that looked a lot like hers and described the same. And, and they were, you know, four and $5,000, $12,000 pieces. 
So she said it was just like this and like this. And, and so we knew it was really high-end stuff. And I asked her, I said, well, how'd you get all this stuff? I mean, she was a manicurist and she was an attractive manicurist, but she was a manicurist at the Mulebach Hotel and worked mainly on tips. And she says, oh, she said, just various friends gave them to me over the years. And I said, okay. You know, we ended up making our case on Dale Gilliard and getting him put in jail. And, and we recover some of these pieces. Uh, he helps us. He, we, we helped him a little bit and he got him a, a probation, I think, in the end. But because uh, well, he was still... He might have been stealing the stuff, but he wasn't stealing it to keep it himself. He no, he was selling it just to it. sell. Right. He just selling it sell. And he was real careful. He'd call up, make sure nobody was home. Then he'd go in and use a master key and root through people's stuff. I remember he had, this was early in the, uh, this is before uh, DVDs and before online porn. We found this guy's. Uh, complete collection of eight millimeter porn tapes and and a projector that Gilliard had stolen. He just had those at his apartment. I guess he was watching the guy's porn. Now, how does that connect up with these professional criminals, organized crime, diamond thieves? Well, here's how it connects up. A few years later, I'm in the intelligence unit and we decide we're going to follow Snag Klein around. Nobody had heard anything out of him, and we followed him one day. He had the time to read newsstand. He owned a newsstand downtown. We followed him up the Mulebach Hotel. He went in the barbershop, and I could see him having a lot of conversation with my old friend who was the manic- still the manicurist there, and she seemed to know him quite well. So I you know, I thought, well, I'll just get a hold of her later and find out what she knows. I wasn't even for sure this was Snag Klein. I was pretty sure, like 90% sure, but I didn't. we didn't have a good picture of him recently. And he hadn't even come up on anybody's radar in probably five years, uh, organized crime-wise. And I thought maybe he hadn't. I think he was actually retired. He wasn't even involved at all anymore by this point in time. I called her at home later that evening, and she said, I said, was that Snag Klein you were talking to? And I could tell she kind of took her aback and and she says, well, my, she said, that was, you know, that was Mr. Morris Klein. Yes, he was, he was in today. And I said, oh, okay. I could tell that. And I said, well, how do you know him? Oh, I've just known him for a long time. She was real reticent and real careful all of a sudden and hung up. And, and I start asking around. And I find out in an old, old file, I think I actually went to our files and ran, not, you didn't run a name then. I looked in the card files under her name I found her name had a mention in an old 1960s, 59 or 60 report. So I go out and pull that report, and it's a copy of an FBI report, and it says, and it gives her name as being the girlfriend of Morris Snag Klein. So I thought, well, hell, that's how she got all that expensive jewelry. Snag Klein got it, and he would have gotten from, guess where? Professional criminals who were connected to the mobs. You know, that's a way that those things can go out. Did you go back and look and see if there, if it tied into any jewelry heists in that era? You know, I didn't. It, uh, there really wasn't any way to do it unless we happened to have somebody's memory was, oh, we had a huge big jewelry theft and here's we got a file on it. And and we didn't have that. So other than that, there was really no way to do it. Well, and and, it and we didn't know if it came from another heist. city. Yeah, it could have been from another Chicago, city. Chicago, yeah. It was uh, records. Uh, records are not kept that well. That's my story on how uh, the mob may work with professional diamond thieves. And, and they always, I remember I, I knew this lady once, they gave a fur coat to who had helped them get bets in. She worked at a place where there's a lot of salesmen and, and she liked to drink at the uh, 
Mel's Pompeii room, 43rd and Main, and they would take the book in there, and she would take up the bets from the salesman where she worked, and, and she'd drop them off with uh, the bookie there at Mel's Pompeii room, and, and, and like at Christmas time came up, why they she ended up with a fur coat, brand new fur coat that, you know. Just for fun, just because they liked her. And it fell off a truck. <laughs> and it fell off a truck, yeah. It fell little. off a truck or probably came out of a uh, high-end burglary, either a home or probably this was brand new. So it uh, probably came out of a uh, uh, first store that some of the, the boys had burglarized. And So let's go back to our story. Uh, so is it possible that Joe, uh, Joseph Scalisi and Art Rachel had uh, girlfriends and they are just trying to get diamonds for it? <laughs> Well, uh, not the Marlboro diamond <laughs> and not $3 million worth of diamonds. They might take their money and buy them $20,000 worth of diamonds, but uh, not 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 in this category. This is 45, uh, 45 carats. 45 carats. This was stolen for resale. We're in London, England in 1980. The store has just been robbed. It was just a, 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 an easy no-brainer. Just walk in, put a gun on the... Owner and the security guard have everybody lay down on the floor, scoop up what you want, walk out, get in your car, and drive off. And and they, they were on them right away, as I said before. They had rented the car from Hertz Rental Car. Uh, Mr. Collin had gotten the license number. They found out that it was rented out of Heathrow, so they figured they're going to go back to Heathrow one of these days. They start checking manifest out of Heathrow for later that afternoon or that day. Both names... Joseph Scalise and Art Rachel are on British Airways flight number 298 en route to Chicago, Illinois. And if you remember, they gave a Chicago address when they checked in at the hotel. So they had had driven away, parked the car, got a cab, already had, they didn't check out of the hotel. They already had their stuff ready and got a cab and headed to the airport. But on the way to the airport, the, the uh, Scotland Yard finds the taxi driver who took him to the airport and he remembers that they stopped and and they wanted to mail a package on the way to the airport and a postal clerk remembered one of them mailing a package and he thought it was new york city but he didn't remember and there was they don't write down records of your of the address where a play, package is going to unless you do something like registered or buy insurance or something on it. Otherwise, there's, you know, there's no record of the package and a package being mailed at all. And they didn't do any of that. They just mailed it. Scotland Yard detectives contact Chicago police because they are already winging their way across the Atlantic and phone call to get there a lot quicker than an airplane. So FBI agents are waiting at the airport for Joseph Scalise, for the monk and the brain to land, and they snatch him up when they land. Well, you would think when they the cab driver said, well, they mailed the package to New York. I mean, that seems kind of specific, eh? And well, the cab they, driver only said they mailed a package. The, it was a postal clerk who kind of remembered them okay, and said so then they, they, they thought they it was to New down York. To where the what post office sure, they dropped? Exactly. Out. Yeah. The cab driver would think would remember that, and, and the postal they, clerk remembered them. Remembered them, but then what? Once the package went into like the their mail system, there was no. There's no record. There's no searching. No, know, like there's no searching. Probably was, you know, one of 
don't know how many packages that went in, but there was no searching apparently because they didn't find it. This is all still during the same day of the. This is all the same. Yeah, this is the same day. Although you know that September 11th, 1980. That I say was that probably wasn't the same day. I don't have the actual reports, but but finding the cab driver and the cab driver then tells them about what post office they went to. Might have been. Might have been later on. It was probably was they could not act that fast. So it wouldn't have been, it couldn't have been the same day. They couldn't have found that cab driver that day. But they were at least, I mean, they narrowed it down. They figured the flight they were on that was going to Chicago. They did that. They were able to call ahead, set the FBI in motion to get them coming off the plane. Snatch them up. No diamonds. End up, they have enough probable cause to get them extradited back to London. Eyewitnesses who were in the store ID them as the thieves. Mr. Colin IDs them as the thieves. The uh, Probably the cab driver ID'd them as the guys that, he took to the airport and mailed a package. Uh, they had fought extradition, of course, but they ended up back in London, and, and both of them are tried and convicted, and they're given 15 years in a British prison, and they did that. They did probably, you know, whatever, you know, short of if you have good time or however, but they, they did most of the 15 years in uh, a prison in, in London. Uh, English insurance company during this time had offered a $100,000 reward, and it's still out there. If you can find that diamond, you can get yourself $100,000 and not even have to worry about getting in trouble. Neither man has ever talked about this robbery to anybody that has turned around and told anybody else. And And actually what they do is they continue to proclaim their innocence. And, and to this day, they continue to be master criminals. And, and like I was telling you about how the Bureau first got on to them in, in 2010. And these guys are both 74 years old. The monk and the genius are 74 years old. Why were they going after Angelo LaPietra, the hook, and, and being a former mob boss? And somehow the Bureau figured this out, why they did this. I, they probably they might have even told them, or, or I know why they did it, how they know it. They were. They had microphones on them. They had a wiretap on them. They probably caught them talking about this, but they caught them talking about there was a Chicago outfit guy named Nick Calabrese, and Calabrese is if if you're a mob aficionado out there and you have read the Family Secrets trial, you'll know about Nick Calabrese. He was really a high up mob guy in Chicago outfit and a killer. Bureau, after they, they were starting to make a case on him, they served a search warrant on his house, and they found three-quarters of a million dollars in cash and hundreds of thousands of dollars in diamonds inside a hidden safe. So this gave the monk and the genius the idea to rob the widow of the former outfit boss, Angelo La Pietra. Why did they, do you know why they called him the hook? You know, I don't know that. I don't know the uh, the history of that. I looked up the history of these other two, and I, I did not think to look. That's a good question. I'm going to look that up. Like Joey Doves, we had a whole program on why Joey Doves is Joey Doves. You know, Cork Savella, Carl Cork Savella is Cork because he blows off like a cork. Tuffy DeLuna is Tuffy DeLuna because he's tough. I'm not sure about the hook. Oh, Joe Batters is because he, uh, Anthony... Accardo, the former Chicago mob boss, he was Joe Batters because he once beat somebody up really bad with a baseball bat. And uh, I think it was uh, uh, Al Capone dubbed him that and said, man, you're Joe Batters with those baseball bats. Maybe there's one of the people listening to the podcast. Maybe so. I bet there is. I bet there is. Send us a note. Info at 
ganglandwire.com or go to the Facebook page and, and message me through ganglandwire or just post it on there. Post it on my Facebook page, ganglandwire. So now in 2010, when they're, uh, when these same two guys, the monk and the genius, are planning to rob this deceased mob boss house, that's 2010, right? Right, correct. That's modern time. And so at this point, this these guys after are they actually, did their 15 like years, 74 years old. Yeah, 74 years old, and and they have served their 15 years in an English prison. Well, they would have got out about 96. 96, yeah, and they've been out for a while. Don't tell them what they've been doing since 96. Obviously doing enough that they drew the FBI's attention and they were able to gather enough information to do get probable cause to go up on microphones and wiretaps on them. That means that they've been doing stuff. What the Bureau learned as they were listening and watching that these aging mobsters have already stolen two vehicles for use in thefts. One of them, a van, is specially outfitted to allow an occupant inside the van to fire back at anybody trying to chase them. They've obtained several firearms. They're plotting this armored car robbery as, as well as a La Pietra home invasion robbery. Because it really wasn't going to be a burglary. They, they intended, they, they thought at the La Pietra house there would be a housekeeper inside and, may, and the widow. So that it was going to be not just a simple unoccupied residence burglary, but a home invasion, which they would have to keep them, hold them prisoner. And the the 90-some-year-old aging uh, widow of a dead mobster and her housekeeper probably were not going to give them much trouble, but they were ready. They were following them. They knew they were getting ready to do it. They'd been following them for quite a while. They'd caught them. Following this, I, I think I said this before, they, they followed them following around an armored car that they're planning on robbing and making stops and writing things down about the route of the armored car. Caught him casing La Pietra's suburban mansion. He was in suburban Chicago somewhere, probably up there in, uh, I think it's uh, Oak Park, where a lot of those guys live is the name of that uh, area. They listen as they discuss any potential problems they may encounter while they're going into La Pietra's mansion. They're following them around, and, and they know they're getting ready to do it. Early April in 2010, outside a what's described as a stately brick family home of Angelo La Pietra, known as The Hook, FBI agents arrest the 74-year-old monk, Jerry Scalise, and he's wearing all black as he's approaching the house. He's got a ba- black baseball cap, a black windbreaker, a fishing vest with flashlights and gloves stuck in the pockets. He had a bandana around his neck. There's another participant, this guy named Bobby Pulia, who's 70 years old. He wore black pants, black shirt, black knit hat, and black gloves. And Art the Genius Rachel was the wheel man. He was, he was sitting inside the car that they had already stolen and was using to case the house, and, and he was wearing black gloves and a black knit hat. I mean, this stuff is right out of a movie. Start searching the car. They, they pull the genius out. They've, they've caught Pulia and Scalise as they've approached the house. They're searching the car, and they hear the chatter of police dispatches. They find a scanner to listen to police calls coming out. They find glass cleaner. Uh, three battery-powered drills, tools, blades, a six-foot ladder, tool bags, black tape, and flashlights. Now, why would you need all that? I'm not sure about the glass cleaner. Maybe that was to 
clean off possible fingerprints. The drills and tools and blades were because they knew that this other Nick Calabrese had his cash and diamonds in a hidden safe. And so they figured they'd have to break into the safe. Well, the housekeeper wouldn't know where the hidden safe would be at, I wouldn't think. Probably no, probably not. The widow might. The widow might. Might. She may or may not tell. I don't know how far they're. I doubt they're willing to go too far in forcing her to tell them anything. Uh, I can't imagine. I mean, it's one thing to burglarize a house. It would be another thing to hurt the widow of the mob boss. I, I don't know. Well, Robin, the, you already know what's going to happen to guys that rob the house of a mob boss. Well, maybe they get their heads put in a vice because uh, because and these guys La must Pietra know that too because that movie's already out. <laughs> really, it is out. That, uh, that story had been out in that subculture for a long time. I mean, that was a famous story. Uh, Angelo, I mean that Anthony uh, Spilatro probably did not dissuade people from telling around because it made him into one bad dude. You know, I don't know. Uh, they, they, I don't think they would have tortured her if she wouldn't have told them. They probably would have just kept looking. Uh, you can only hide things so well. They were willing to take the risk and and uh, uh, see if they couldn't find it. The tape, I would imagine, was to tape up the uh, widow and the uh, housekeeper. Well, but okay, so having these things, in they your found car, handcuffs and mace too. That was other evidence they used to wearing, show that they were going to black gloves and black clothes and black knit hat. They didn't execute the crime at that point. They were just walking up on the house. They were getting ready to do it. Yeah, they'd made a commitment. There's a point in time when you've got all this tape about how they're planning on doing this. Mm-hmm. Then there's a certain point in time. This is always a problem in law enforcement. Is if you've got information about somebody's getting ready to commit a crime and somebody else could be in danger when they commit the crime. You see this all the time on TV and they let them go on in and then they, you know, pull out the guns and and confront them and, and end up with a gun battle and nobody gets hurt except the bad guys. Well, in real life, it doesn't work like that. So it's always in law enforcement, it's always a really difficult call. When do you go in? When do you interrupt a crime? Well, if you get them committed that far into it, that's enough. After you've got them evidence that they're planning it, you've got evidence that they've got all the accoutrements, all the tools to do it. Mm-hmm. And then when they make that drive to the house and they make that walk from the car up to and around the house, then in order to not take any more chances where somebody would get hurt, then you go ahead and take them off before they actually make entry. Only on the TV do you let them go ahead and make entry. So they had enough by then. So with all of the you make that wiretaps and sure. they, they felt that was sufficient to be able to convict them. That would be more than enough to convict these guys. It wouldn't be They wouldn't be convicted on attempted burglary? No, I think that would be the actual burglary. Uh, 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 it might be an attempt, but it, it would be part of a, a whole raft of other charges more than likely for these guys. First of all, they're convicted felons. They've got guns. Mm-hmm. There's five years for each gun they've got. They've got stolen vehicles. They've got stolen vehicle. They've got, uh, you know, I, I they don't they, have a long, long, long they're time 74 years yeah, old. They're I think they can probably, I think they probably can put them away long enough that, uh, they might not come back out. They probably will not come back out. I think your, your job, main job in law enforcement is to prevent this from happening again and protect society. And I think they had enough to protect society from these two guys for quite a while. Well, and the other thing you would think of course would be this would get out that here they, they were arrested 
in the act of getting ready to burglarize a known mob boss's house. Yeah. So, I mean, that, I can't imagine once they, you know, that became public and they went to jail that they did have a long lease on their lives because you would think the mob would be like, well, you know, that's, their intent was enough for them to be. You know, yeah, sure. I mean, the mob in, in Chicago knows that that's what they were trying to do. But by 2009, 2010, maybe that's no big deal. Or maybe La Pietra was so far out that nobody wants to take any risk. Nobody cares anymore. It's different. It's changed a lot. Some of the old rules are not in place. I, I don't know. They are, you know, they're still alive. Uh, Scalise and, and Rachel and this other guy are still alive. And, and I think they're are they in jail? I think they're in jail. I think they've been convicted of it. I'm pretty sure they've been convicted of it. Well, Scalise is a bad dude. I mean, he's, uh, uh, but, you know, I, there is no, when it comes to dealing with the mob, there is no simple answers many times. There is no, well, if this happens, then that happens, because we don't know all the backstory. For all we know, you know, nobody cares anymore about La Pietra. For all we know, uh, La Pietra was not really well liked anyhow. He, he certainly didn't like Tony Accardo was and still around in order to order somebody to go exact revenge for burglarizing his house. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, I really can't answer that question, whether they're in trouble with the mob for that or not. Escalese is an interesting dude, you know, and uh, during that time he was out before he got caught again, he somehow ended up working as an advisor on a film in 2009 about John Dillinger, Public Enemies is the name of the film. I don't really remember it at all. I might have to look it up. He's been, the lawyer claims that he's been writing and advising Michael Mann, who is, you know, uh, Hollywood, one of the top directors in this action genre. Uh, he did, uh, he, he got famous in Hollywood, um, I mean, in Miami, but he got famous in Miami Vice, that TV show. He did that, and he's he's done a whole bunch of action shows since. He has a kind of distinctive style where he does these fast cuts that keeps the uh, kind of keeps the viewer uh, keeps the adrenaline running in the viewer, and they do all those fast cuts and make makes everything move real fast. Now, so these guys, they uh, they're arrested there outside the house. They end up uh, getting sentenced. Yeah, they do. They do. I just, I look back down here at my notes. I, and it slipped my mind, a senior moment. The genius got eight and a half years. Joey the monk, or Joe Scalisi the monk, got eight and a half years. And Bobby Polia got eight and a half years. They all got the same time. So obviously it must have been just for attempted burglary and probably the gun charge. That's five years on the gun charge. The gun or the stolen vehicle. Charges. And the stolen vehicle. I don't know. They put it all together, uh, I'm sure. Probably. And, and they got him. I'm, I'm pretty sure they got him to cop a plea, which you can save yourself some time if you will cop a plea many times. And I imagine the, the government decided that eight and a half years for a 74-year-old guy, he's there. And they're going to have to do it. It's in federal charge or federal charges somehow. I'm not sure how you make a burglar into a federal charge, but... It was the FBI. It was an FBI case. Why uh, you do the eight? You're going to do eight and a half year stretch. You're going to do eight years, so you're going to be eighty two when you come out. Although these guys are probably still be committing crimes. I think when they come out, 
Hello, I'm, I hope I'm still riding my motorcycle when I'm 82, making podcasts. Well, this guy, you know, Scalise, he, you know, what what happened to the Marlboro Diamond? And that's a good question. He He's talking about uh, writing a book about his exploits. And he was asked about the Marlboro Diamond, if he'd deal with that. And, and, and he said, you know, if the insurance company would ever come up with enough money, he might reveal its location. Which would be a nice selling point for his book, that he would reveal what happened to the Marlboro Diamond and, and get some money, a bunch of money from the insurance company, and they'd get it back. But I don't think he's going to. I, I think uh, some speculate it might be in a private collection, as you talked about earlier. It, it might have been sold in some other country, and somebody doesn't really realize it, but it's so big, I would think somebody would know by now. It would be too big to really move by itself. You would have I'd to think cut so. It out. Right. And that's the other speculation is that it was cut up into smaller diamonds and fenced out. And, and you know, Tony Sploratro at this time had this Gold Coast jewelry shop in 1980 in Las Vegas. And it would be an ideal place to take those, take that jewelry, take it apart, put it back together in other pieces. You could just melt the gold down and then take the diamonds and all the stones and put them in other pieces and then sell them out like that. So... I mean, yeah, the the value of the Marlboro Diamond isn't really worth much if you can't move it. Without and it's not worth much without the story. It's not worth as much as what it is without the story and in intact. So then you got to take it apart. You know, it's just it's impossible to move as it is. As it is. And and, and really, it's just as a you'd have to cut it apart. You'd have to take it and just cut it into much smaller diamonds, which can easily be done. If you have a problem with, uh, or yourself, or if you have a friend, or a relative, or a co-worker, a boss, a subordinate that has a problem with drugs or alcohol, or any other kind of addictive behavior with sex, gambling, food even, uh, a lot of people have a food addiction, make your first call to First Call, 816 816- Three six one fifty nine hundred. You can check out the Big Dumb Fun Show, which uh, airs Mondays from seven to ten p.m. Central Standard Time live at uh, BigDumbFunShow.com, or watch episodes which will be in replay all week long, courtesy of Livestream. If you're a band and you've got music, send us your best radio-friendly MP3s. Attach them to an email. Send them to info at BigDumbFunShow.com. We'll take a listen to them and maybe. Just maybe we'll play them on the air, like this band who provided us bumper bed music for Gangland Wire Crime Stories. 